Well, I haven't had to do the church shopping thing for a while. The last time I did that was clear back in 2004 when uh, we were going to move to Spokane, Washington. And uh, I was visiting two churches every Sunday. I could go to an early service and a late service, and I was going kind of canvassing my way around. And pretty soon it became apparent to me that uh, I wasn't hearing the word sin very often, and we weren't talking about sin very often. And it's pretty obvious why is because talking about sin tends to turn people off, especially unbelievers. And if you want to attract big crowds and have a large church, you don't talk about that very often. I got to the point where I started counting the number of times the word sin was mentioned. Sometimes it wasn't mentioned at all. Sometimes maybe once or twice. And so, as we come to the passage that we're going to study this morning, starting in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and you can turn there in your Bibles... This is the kind of passage that uh, when you're preaching through a book like we're preaching through Acts or like Pat just finished uh, in the spring where he taught through Luke, um, you really can't just skip sections that might be a little hard. And so this morning we're coming to a section that's hard. We're coming to a section that talks about sin. Talks about sin in the church. That's what happens in our text this morning. As we come to the fourth major event in the book of Acts, the first big event in the story of Acts revolved around the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 1. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. Before he ascended, Jesus gave the apostles and thus his church their mission to be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The second major event happens in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. When through the power of the Spirit, the preaching of Peter about the redemption that is ours in Christ, 3,000 people believed in the good news, believed in Jesus. And Jews from across the Roman Empire, who had made the pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, came to believe. The church, through the power of the Spirit, saw the gospel of Jesus on the move. The sovereign hand of God was moving on this very first day of the church. The third major event, we just finished the last two weeks. The healing of the lame man, a man over 40 years old who was crippled since birth, who was a familiar sight at the gates of the temple where he begged for money day after day after day. And God did an undeniable miracle through Peter who spoke of the victory over sin accomplished by Christ on the cross. The lame man walked for the first time in his entire life. Peter made the points to the crowd that Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament talked about. He is the Messiah of Israel. In response, the first persecution of the church comes about. The Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, who had religious and civil authority in Jerusalem, were annoyed and arrested Peter and John and kept them in custody overnight. But the next day, they warned them to speak no more about Jesus and about His resurrection. 
to which they replied that they must speak about what we have seen and heard. They will continue to be witnesses for Jesus. And upon their release, they returned to their brothers and sisters, to the young church, and they prayed together, giving thanks. And as a result of the miracle and the preaching of Peter, 5,000 more men came to believe. So the church is now numbering over 10,000 in Jerusalem, maybe as many as 15 or 20. The church is growing. And despite the first taste of opposition, the church, through the power of the Spirit, saw the gospel of Jesus Christ on the move again, according to the sovereign plan of God. Now, as the story continues, the church is faced with an attack from an unexpected place, from an unexpected source. The opposition from outside the church was expected from the Jewish council and even the Romans. But as we will see today, there arises opposition from inside the church. Problems whose source is from those who are part of the one heart and one soul of the believers gathered in Jerusalem. There are three parts to today's message. Part one, gracious love in the church. Chapter four, verses 32 to 37. Part two, dangerous lies in the church. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, and chapter 3, or part 3, the bold witness of the church, chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. Follow along with me as I read. We start with God's gracious love in the church, starting in verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need." Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means sons of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here we see the unity and love of the church for one another is not only inward, for they were of one heart and soul, but this love was tangible and also visible. No one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Is this, as some have argued, some kind of Christian communism or socialism? It sounds very similar to the activity of the believers immediately after the day of Pentecost when Luke describes them in chapter 2, verse 44, He says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all all who had need. So has the church renounced private property rights for its members? No, it hasn't. That's not the case. And we're going to see that explicitly said in chapter 5, verse 4. What Luke is describing here is voluntary activity of the saints. 
It's a Christian love that regards the needs of others more important than holding on to one's own possessions. There is such unity among the believers here and such a need among them that believers are selling their own possessions to relieve the material and physical burdens of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And there was a great need amongst these saints in Jerusalem. Many of the saints in Jerusalem had come from far away. They had traveled from all parts of the Roman Empire. And then when they came to faith in Christ, they hung together as a community of believers. Even the local Jews would have been socially ostracized from their community. As believers in Christ, they would have been cast out of their jobs. They would have been disowned by their families. They needed help just for food, shelter, and clothing. This kind of support for God's people is commanded in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 15, Israel is commanded to materially support the poor in her midst. And most of us, if not all of us, know the most famous verse in the Bible, right? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It's a great salvation verse, isn't it? But do we so readily recall 1 John 3.16 where it makes clear we are to share our material goods with those brothers in need. 1 John 3, verse 16 and 17. By this we know love, that He, Jesus, laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Here we have the brothers with money, the brothers, the Christians with wealth, with material goods, there to provide for the brothers in need. And that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 4. Let's look further into passages, see what fueled this unity and love, and see how this was actually worked out in their lives. In verse 33, there are two things that characterize this love. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ brought a unity and a love to them that nothing else in the world could. They are unified around Christ. And then the last statement of verse 33 tells us that great grace was upon them all. This grace from God was sustaining them even as the pressure of persecution was starting to mount. The gospel of Christ and God's grace working through the Holy Spirit is the fuel that unites them in love for one another. They are united together. And now, starting in verses 34 and 35, we get more specifics about how they provided for each other. It is clear that everyone in the church, it is clear that not everyone in the church sold everything they owned and threw the money in one pot and then redistributed it to everyone else. There was precedent for that in in, in New Testament times in Israel. The Essenes, A group required that if you joined them, you sold everything you had and gave all your money over to them. That's not the case here. 
The support here was provided to those who had need. The real needs. How was that done? Well, in the last half of verse 34, it says, As many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. In New Testament times in Jerusalem, the standard of living was pretty low compared to modern-day America or even modern-day Israel. Only about 10 to 20% of people actually owned any property, that is, land or houses. And it's likely it was a much lower percentage among the believers in Christ in Jerusalem at the time. So what was happening is those who owned property voluntarily sold at least some of their property, if not all of it, and brought it to the apostles. And the words used here indicate this was an ongoing process. That as the need arose, the believers sold more of their property and made provision for the needy among them. And laying it at the apostles' feet was a way of acknowledging their obedience and submission to the apostles. In using these gifts, they are in effect saying, we are giving this to you, to the apostles, to the leaders of the church, so that you might provide for those in need as you see fit, as is best for them. And now Luke, the author of Acts, points us to a great example of this kind of giving in verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Many people were doing this. Many of the the wealthy, those who had means within the congregation were doing this. But Barnabas is cited as as an example, a specific example. Barnabas is a name given him by the apostles. And son of encouragement is an apt description of this man. He is mentioned numerous times in the book of Acts. And almost universally, it's in a positive light. He is the frequent companion of Paul. He's from the island of Cyprus, not far from Israel. He has a heart to bring the gospel to his native island and to Gentiles. But here we see him as the example of love towards other believers in giving of his material goods. He sold a field, possibly in Cyprus, and laid the money before the apostles. Barnabas is singled out as a special example. So Barnabas is a good and gifted man. And one gathers from the special stress laid upon him that Barnabas probably was a man who had significant possessions. He had made some investments. This particular investment, this land, was a different kind. For here he's going to bring things from his material wealth to minister to his brothers in Christ. And in reality, this material investment was a spiritually significant investment in the eternal things of the Lord and for the people of God. Like Barnabas, we make investments. And investments that we make for the Lord are investments that bear everlasting value, everlasting returns. And people think a lot about returns on investments today. They talk about stocks and bonds, real estate, gold and silver, various other ways by which we can invest our money to secure the highest return. 
And I don't have anything against that. It's good to provide for your financial future and be a good steward of what God has given. We should simply remember that all of our possessions are the Lord's. And we hold them in trust from Him. And as such, we should look for the highest return. And I suggest to you that the highest return is not found in stocks or bonds, in gold or silver. It's not found in investing in Berkshire Hathaway, even if you bought it when Mr. Buffett was still a young man. The highest return that you can get is something that is invested in the Lord's work. Invested in true spiritual things. Here is where the real returns are for Barnabas. For there has been a return on his investment for about 2,000 years now. We're reading about him this morning. Barnabas was privileged and blessed by God to be involved in using his time and money to bring the gospel to many to support the saints in need and to proclaim the greatness of Christ and support his church. It is far better for you and I to have the opportunity to invest in things that really have value for eternity. Barnabas illustrates, of course, the supremacy of the spiritual over the material. And that Christian stewardship for those graced by God and with riches is one of the many ways God gives us to bless his church and those in need within it. Now, there were some people in the church who thought Barnabas was such a magnificent example that they would kind of like to do the same thing and follow in his footsteps. For evidently, Barnabas was greatly admired and respected. Not only for what he was, but for what he had done. And these people saw that this was a man of unusual dedication to the Lord. And they liked the way, perhaps, that the Christians responded. Praising what Barnabas had done. And they thought they would like to have some of that praise from men as well. That brings us to part two. Dangerous lies in the church. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Luke will now tell us about the great contrast between Barnabas on the one hand and two other members of the early church, Ananias and Sapphira. He will show us that deceit and dangerous lies are found within the church. We will learn that the first sin in the church, the first public sin exposed in the church is the sin of hypocrisy. Jesus' strongest comments We're against religious hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, Jesus decried the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Don't be like the hypocrites who give their money And pray and fast so they can be seen by all. So they can be praised by others. We will learn in this passage that God is not some distant, uninvolved observer in his church. But rather he is all-knowing and he is active in his church. This passage shows that God knows the motives and hearts of believers. Here we see a miracle. Not a healing miracle, but a miracle of judgment from the Lord. 
chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias and Sapphira took the same action Barnabas did. They sold a piece of property. But after the sale, they acted in a very different manner. The couple evidently had announced and claimed that they set the entire proceeds of their sale before the apostles, just like Barnabas had done. But in reality, they had kept back some of the money from the sale themselves. The the term kept back in verse 2 is found only one other time in the New Testament. And it is translated as pilfering or stealing in Titus chapter 2 verse 1. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word kept back is found in Joshua 7 verse 1, where Achan was stealing items devoted to the Lord. It is a term used for financial fraud. The word implies someone was defrauded. That is, money was taken or kept from someone by deceptive means. But who had Ananias and Sapphira defrauded? Who did this money that they'd pledged belong to? Verse 3 of chapter 5. But Peter said, Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? How did Peter know this? We don't know. Maybe it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. But somehow Peter knew and he confronts them. Verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to God, to men, but to God. Ananias had lied to the Holy Spirit in deceitfully holding back some of the purchase price for himself and his wife. In doing so, they have not lied to man, but to God. For to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God because the Holy Spirit is God. You cannot lie to a force as the Holy Spirit is sometimes referred to, but you can lie to a person. And in pretending to be something he was not, Ananias had showed himself to be a hypocrite. One who pretends to be one thing, only in reality is something else. The word hypocrisy, hypocrite, comes from the theater, the ancient theater. When the actor would put on a mask, they would be something else. They would, they would be something else than what they really were by putting on the mask. They would take on a role to be a different character than they really were. So Ananias is a hypocrite here. And Peter, in verse 4, makes it clear as he asks Ananias two rhetorical questions that anticipate a positive reply. They expect a yes. And they make it very clear that Ananias executed this conspiracy to deceive with his wife when he didn't have to. This isn't just some misunderstanding. Peter's first question is, in verse 4, While it, your property, remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
The answer, of course, is yes. Ananias was under no compulsion to sell his property if he didn't want to. It was totally voluntary. Peter's second question brings us face to face with the intentional and premeditated deception. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Of course it was. Ananias had the option of keeping all the money after he sold it. He had the option of keeping some of the money and laying some of it at the apostles' feet. But apparently, motivated by a desire to appear more generous than he really was, the desire to be seen as loving and receive the praise of men, well, that was evidently more important to him than being faithful and honest before God. The questions of why did you do this and how could you do this ring out. Ananias' actions show his desire is to receive the praise of men rather than honor God. This is an act of defiance and disobedience egged on by the temptation of Satan who played a role in the attack on the church. But that doesn't excuse Ananias for opening the door for the sin in the first place to be influenced by Satan himself. You see, when money and our pride get mixed together, it is a dangerous combination. One that lit the fuse that exploded in Ananias' dangerous lie and the resulting judgment by God. Verse Verse 5. When Ananias heard these words... He fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. The sudden nature of the judgment is shocking. I would guess Peter was taken back. We have no indication Peter knew this would happen. It certainly wasn't done as a result of Peter's own actions. And even the words he spoke doesn't give us an indication that God is going to judge in this way. Clearly, Peter's words were powerful and convicting, but they certainly didn't seem to foreshadow the swift execution of justice by the holy and righteous God. Until it happened, I don't think Peter thought God was going to kill Ananias. Well, our story goes on. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in. We're not told what she's doing for three hours. His wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things and great fear came upon them probably one of the most believable verses in all the bible can you imagine if what happened that day happened here this morning 
right? We took the offering, didn't we? What if someone brought a big gift up in part of the offering and they were struck dead? What would you be thinking? Especially in light of Peter's condemnation of their hypocrisy. I dare say, there'd be a little fear in the room. The only other time the phrase breathe his or her last is used in the scripture outside of Ananias and Sapphira is in Acts chapter 12, where the Lord brings about the death of Herod. Well, not the kind of company you want to be associated with. Some have wondered if Ananias and Sapphira are truly believers at all. Perhaps they professed faith, but they really didn't have saving faith. Well, that's possible. They certainly didn't act like believers in this instance. But the story really doesn't indicate that one way or the other. My own inclination is they were believers who sinned especially egregiously. After all, they are included as part of the group in chapter 4, verse 32, that is said to be the full number of those who believe. And as church historian F.F. Bruce points out, we cannot be sure that they were not true Christians unless we are prepared to say that no one who is guilty of an act of deliberate deceit can be a true Christian. And if that's the standard, myself, and I'm guessing almost all of you, would be disqualified as well. For as believers, we acknowledge we are sinners and that sin still resides in us. What is clear is the impact that this had on the believers. They clearly understand the importance of this and the serious application for themselves. Again, let's read verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It got their attention. They are alert to what's going on. There is no way to avoid the shock that these deaths must have had on the recently born and persecuted church. Attacks from without and now attacks from within. The fear must have been palpable. You could taste it. You could feel it in the air. It is true that God is love. And He is to be loved. But love is not God's only attribute. He is also holy and just. And this instant judgment by God brings a seriousness to their faith. Christianity is a serious faith. It is a life and death faith. And we are children of God with all the rights and privileges of sons. But that should not lead us to a casual disregard for God's holiness, His righteousness, or His justice. For they, along with His love, His grace, and mercy, are His unchangeable attributes. I would guess these believers went to bed that night after this with a healthy fear of God on their minds. Not a terror or a fear of His wrath that would sentence them to an attorney apart from the Lord, but a serious and respectful fear that understands His power and His holiness and gives us pause when we consider the ultimate price the Son of God paid for our sin so that we might be forgiven. While this is a striking example of instant judgment, 
it also indicates that even though this is a very unusual incident, incidence and is unique in the way that God judges sin, we do not have God in a box. We do not have a domesticated God that we can trot out when we want Him to appear to do our bidding and then put Him back in the box when we're done. In the words of C.S. Lewis, He is not a tame lion. God is not a cosmic Santa Claus. This kind of discipline of God is found in other passages in the New Testament. In places that apply to believers. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 30. We are told that those who partake of the Lord's table of communion in an unworthy manner. Eat and drink judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. It can be a severe discipline, a discipline that brings physical death, but not one that brings condemnation for eternity for believers. We know that from Peter's sermon so far in Acts. For those who trust in Christ, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. Those who have believed in Jesus for eternal life will be in glory with Him, for nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty for our sins once for all on the cross. He is our substitute. He is our advocate before the Father. Jesus sits at His right hand. If the Jews and Romans who crucified Jesus can be forgiven and granted eternal life, certainly there is no sin we commit today that cannot be blotted out by the sacrifice of our Savior. This miracle of judgment tells us that God is one who knows and one who disciplines. He brings even severe discipline within God's community of the church. You cannot hide sin from God. He sees it all. He is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And in the case of Ananias and Sapphira... The sin in the church is cut out immediately. It happens early in the life of the church. It gives us pause in at least three additional ways. First, it emphasizes the seriousness of sin. Sin is always a serious issue. Jesus died to save his people from their sins. Without his atonement for us, it would not be possible for us to be reconciled to God. We must never minimize sin. And when we sin as we will this side of heaven, we must repent of it, turn from it, and run to Christ in prayer. Run to the foot of the cross where forgiveness and power to overcome sin is found. This seriousness of sin is why we practice church discipline. In this passage, in Acts chapter 5, verse 11, is the first time the word church is used in Acts. Jesus brought it up for the first time in Matthew 16. And then, just a short while later in Matthew 18, he outlines the steps of church discipline. For disciplining ongoing and unrepentant serious sin in the church. Secondly, we are to be reminded of the evil intentions of Satan. Jesus reminded the disciples he was building his church in enemy-occupied territory. Satan is the prince of this world, and he hates everything pertaining to Jesus and his kingdom. 
Be alert. Be aware of Satan's clever and cunning ways. And don't forget for a moment that there is an unseen spiritual war being waged. The victory ultimately belongs to Christ, but Satan is still loose in this world, awaiting his final judgment. Third, remember the holiness of God. The swift judgment of God on Ananias and Sapphira reminds us that the holiness of God is not just an Old Testament teaching. Rather, God was, is, and always will be holy. And His justice rightly falls on those who have broken His law and sinned against Him. When we remember His holiness, we are reminded of our own sinfulness. And we are driven to our representative, to Jesus Christ, who is perfectly holy, who is without sin, and can stand in my place as my mediator before God and credits me with the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Well, what was next for the young church? What did this incident of Ananias and Sapphira motivate them to do? Verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together. All the Christians were together in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest, none of the unbelievers, dared join with them. But the people held them in high regard. I can imagine that the others in Jerusalem, the unbelievers in Jerusalem who heard this, both for fear of the Jewish authorities and for fear of the judgment of God, would be a little hesitant to join in with the church after this incident. You see, this doesn't really sound like a strategy for church growth, does it? No. No. Not really what the church growth consultants would tell us to talk about this morning. Because sin is ugly and sin is evil. But yet these Christians are motivated to do what? Look at verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. The apostles and the disciples, the believers in Jerusalem, continue to proclaim Christ. As a matter of fact, the opposition within the church, the opposition without the church, motivated them to proclaim Christ. The old saying is, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What happens when the church is persecuted? It grows. Where is the church growing numerically the most in the world today? It's in China. It's in China. An official atheistic country where the church is growing by leaps and bounds. If we as the modern day church in America are persecuted, what do you think might happen? God might use it to grow us. Because people will observe real sacrifice for the testimony of Jesus Christ. They will see that we are different. That we hold to something that is solid as a rock, that is unchanging. That Christ is our Savior. Well, the signs and miracles that they prayed for in chapter 4 happen. Let's look at verse 15. 
So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. You see, the gospel is now spreading beyond the walls of Jerusalem to the the towns of Judea, and people are coming to hear the gospel and are believing. And they were bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. They were all healed. It is often said by many in the charismatic and the Pentecostal movement that everything that happens in the early church should be happening today. Well, if that were true, and we made Ananias and Sapphira the norm every time we had church and there was an act of hypocrisy, we wouldn't have very many of us left, would we? Because we know we're sinners. We know there are times when we are hypocrites. We know, however, that we have a God who forgives. This event was a special case designed by God to give us a glimpse of what takes takes place inwardly in the life of the church when a person plays the part of a hypocrite. We do not escape the disciplinary judgment of God, and this very outward illustration is not something that will happen again, as is evidenced from the book of Acts and the remainder of the New Testament. It's a unique event. But it is here to impress upon us that divine discipline is happening constantly, that our loving Heavenly Father is pruning us. Proverbs 5, verse 21 says, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. We can't hide. But praise be to God that there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That the just, that Christ died for the unjust. That's you and me. And that he did that so that he might bring us to God. Let's pray. Father, We are thankful to you for these very important words to us. Oh God, deliver us from hypocrisy, from every form of disrespect towards you. Give us a right spirit before you. May we be servants who seek your face, earnestly desiring the glory of Jesus Christ and no glory for ourselves. For those without Christ this morning, Lord, bring them to him that they might know eternal life in Christ. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.